0: Really excited today to have Jill Doshi, the founder of Potomac Group, uh, to talk to us about a range of topics and, and the the initial motivation. And the reason we were so excited about this this discussion is um, because Jill played uh, an important role in the so-called blue bond issued by Belize recently uh, in connection with the Nature Conservancy. And Me Too and I have been really interested in that transaction and in the broader subject of sovereign environmental, social uh, governance lending in general. And with the link between private finance and climate adaptation and mitigation, and our, I think, sort of trying to figure out our own thinking in that area. And Jill has done a ton of work both in that setting and in the so- sovereign advisory context more generally. She's also the the host of a great podcast, Sovereign Debt with Jill Doshi. So um, we couldn't imagine a better person to have on to, to start this discussion. And, and Jill, maybe I can just start by saying thank you so much for, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
0: Can, can we just start with some broad overview of terminology. I think I get confused still, and and I hope I'm not alone in that, in the sort of bewildering range of terms that we hear in connection with climate finance. So there's the blue bond, we have green bonds, we have sustainability-linked bonds. Can you give us just a brief uh, sort of overview of the terminological landscape and the different kinds of transactions?
1: absolutely and i'm glad to hear i w- i'm not the only one that was daunted by all of the all of the terms um you know my background is in sovereign debt and advising uh governments on debt distress and, and debt issuances um so i was relatively new to the whole kind of impact world and climate finance and so my first step into this was actually learning the difference between green and blue it sounds silly, and climate and nature. Um, I didn't really appreciate um, for quite some time, really those distinctions. Um, climate and nature, first of all, is just really they're talking about, when you're talking about climate, it's really about the carbon markets and, and, and climate change uh, and um, global warming and all of that. And the nature you're really talking about biodiversity, and um, natural ecosystems and, and often sometimes even uh, key species. Um, but getting back to the kind of finance of it, there's two broad categories. The first is really the, what we call the use of proceeds bonds. And these are very akin to kind of project finance where someone will borrow money for a very specific purpose. Um, And those are go by the names of the sustainable bonds. Um, And the the most common category is really green bonds. We hear about those in the the blue bonds, but you also hear kind of SDG bonds, which are talking about the sustainable development goals. Um, So when we're talking about green bonds, we're really saying that you're borrowing money to use the proceeds for this sort of green project. You're going to it's usually you know land related or uh, again kind of carbon related. So you're going to build a, a solar park or you're going to plant trees or you're going to restore um, you know s- something <laughs> you know in the land. And blue bonds is really very specific towards the ocean uh, and blue economy. And so there you're talking about the seagrasses, the mangroves, um, fisheries, etc. Um, but it is still very much linked. To a project. SDG bonds are more broad, and that's really can be anything of the UN development goals. So it can be gender empowerment or other social uh, kind of projects, education, uh, building hospitals, etc. So all of that is kind of in this one big bucket of the use of proceeds bonds. Um, the other big bucket is this emerging what we call sustainability-linked bonds. And they're going by a lot of names because it's just an evolving field. So they're also known as nature-performance bonds or performance-linked bonds or often commonly KPI bonds. And the KPI is the key part. That's a a key performance indicator. So unlike the use of proceeds bonds, the sustainability-linked bonds are – general use of proceeds. So you can borrow the money and you can use it however you want in your general budget. However, the terms and conditions of the bond are going to be linked to a particular outcome. And that's the KPI. That's the key performance indicator. So you'll you'll say we're going to lower emissions by a certain amount. And if you achieve that a target, the bonds will have a different payout structure. These are these have emerged in the corporate sector, usually in this in the form of a step up coupon if you fail to meet the, the indicator. And in the sovereign sector, they're they're still being developed. Uh, and we're working hard on on rolling those out hopefully soon.
2: So Jill, you know, Mark and I spend a lot of time focusing on contract provisions. And we have looked in our historical database at bonds in the late 1800s and early 1900s in particular. And one of the interesting aspects of a number of those historical bonds is the importance of the use of proceeds provisions. And if there was financing for a railroad, for example, uh, investors wanted to be assured that that was what the financing was going for. Although I remember us talking about whether or not there was any kind of real enforcement mechanism other than claiming just breach of contract for the violation of the use of proceeds provision. And this this development that we've seen in recent years uh, with the popularity of green and blue and sustainability linked bonds, as you said, seems to all be making the use of proceeds provisions more important, telling us that investors care about how you use proceeds, that that investors are willing to maybe give you a little break on how much they charge you for the use of proceeds provision being clearly specified. So, is that something that uh, you guys think about when you advise governments on you know like the, the reinvigoration of the use of proceeds forms because for for decades there has been this use of proceeds forms just because contract provisions never get deleted once they're in there but they just say we're going to use the proceeds for general purposes
1: right no exactly and I, I I think this is this is exactly that distinction so the the these green bonds, blue bonds, ECG bonds, et cetera, all of these that are kind of targeting a very specific project or a very specific, as you say, kind of use of proceeds, those are flourishing, but you rightly point out there's not necessarily, you know, a kind of consequence if you don't use the use of proceeds in the way that you say. So like if I say i'm going to build the solar park but maybe i don't finish the solar park or maybe i just put it in a in the wrong place or um i didn't do it at all and i just something else happened and i used the the proceeds in a different way you know, you might lose credibility um, and you might not be able to issue that kind of bond again but um you know will there be a Kind of quote unquote default on the on on the use of proceeds. I, I don't think so. Um, whereas, and I think this idea of wanting kind of to get back to a kind of general, kind of general use of proceeds bond, but still have kind of impact and 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 still try to steer governments to having you know, real accountability on the impact that's where this these other new bonds are hopefully going to emerge which are kind of linked to the outcome so it's not just spend the money on on some project it's we really want to see the outcome so i mean this is to me that this is an
0: interesting distinction in part because i have been struggling to figure out what I think of the sort of broad commitment to use proceeds in a particular way that seems not really to be enforceable and to to figure out whether that's a um, sort of a flaw or not a flaw in the general design of the the kinds of use of proceeds bonds but is this the way that we should think about it there's there's one bucket of green lending, and I'm using that term imprecisely, but one bucket where the borrower kind of tells you it's going to do a bunch of green stuff, but you're mostly taking it at its word. And then there's this other bucket where the borrower is just sort of independently of the loan, it's um, agreeing to suffer some consequence if it doesn't achieve an objective. So is that the is that doing something other than giving investors an enforcement mechanism, or is it really just a a way of kind of giving teeth to the environmental commitments? Like we're not going to specify what they are. Maybe we think it's too hard to do that, but we're going to identify some outcome variable and we're going to say if you don't if you don't meet this, um, you suffer some kind of penalty. Is it is it a solution to the to the fact that we can't really specify an enforcement mechanism for the use of proceeds, or is it serving some different function?
1: I think it's it's going to come down to the way the, the what we call the SLB, the sustainability link bonds are structured. If we structure them as a penalty, then, then yes, I think that it is just adding teeth to that. Um, but we can also structure it in a way that it's benefit if you hit the target you you don't have to pay as much <laughs> right or um so instead of having a step up you have kind of a step down structure or you are already started at a credit enhanced way and then you kind of move back to the market rate if you don't you, you know there's there's ways to structure this differently i don't know if that's clear <laughs>
0: it is and my question was a little rambling because i'm trying to figure this out it's interesting because the the law in general doesn't love penalties. So, there's a, a there. Um, Me too, and I had an earlier conversation about this where my attitude was basically like the ideal bond is you specify some, you know, some performance outcome and then you have a really major step up as a penalty if that's not achieved. But the alternative way of structuring it so that the issuer gets a real break. Uh, seems promising, but, but anyway, that's, that's, um, I appreciate the answer.
1: Yeah. and, And we also, I mean, I think that the, the use of proceeds bonds, where, as you, from what we were kind of just saying, the kind of the green bonds, the blue bonds, um, and I know from your earlier episodes, you were questioning, you know, this ability to enforce it. And this is that question of greenwashing that's always out there. Like, are you just, gonna say these fancy things um, and borrow this money. And then you're gonna just do whatever you wanna do or just business as usual. And you're hoping to capture either new investors or this elusive kind of greenium by saying that you're gonna do these nice things, right? But you're really just greenwashing and there's no consequence if you don't achieve anything. Um, for the environment. Whereas I think the sustainability-linked bonds, if they're structured correctly, is actually really, truly linking it to performance and it's really linking it to the outcome. So it's not just about how are you gonna spend the money and we don't really have a way to enforce that. It's really saying, okay, if you hit this target, or even even if you pass this legislation or you hit this policy target, there could be some benefit built into to the bond, uh, and these are things that kind of we're
2: working on. So Jill, on on this this, I find the ideas of idea of sustainability linked bonds uh, fascinating, especially in uh, light of the attempts to popularize. GDP-linked bonds that the World Bank Mm -hmm. was involved in as well. And as we all know, those have, despite uh, the sort of very strong intellectual justification for them and the intellectual justification for why the market should love them, we've had I mean, no success at getting the markets to be interested. And right now we're in the middle of this just completely dragged down battle with Argentina on its GDP warrants where, you know, mm-hmm. both sides are yelling and screaming about bad faith. So that must, I, I, what are you guys, um, or what, do you, what are people doing to, to get this to work? And why do we well, think it, this? Exactly, will
1: work? I mean, we're well, we're looking at all of the other precedents of linking bonds to something. So the whether it's the inflation-linked bonds or the GDP-linked bonds or commodity-linked um, instruments, you know, we're trying to see what worked, what didn't work, um, and looking exactly on why haven't the GDP-linked bonds really taken off? Part of the problem, I think, is the nature of just GDP. um, And this idea that one, it comes with a great lag, it's often revised. It can, you know, there's questions of whether or not it can be manipulated. Um, So I think that has been kind of an ongoing question mark. So I think with the sustainability-linked bonds, it's going to be very important to structure the KPI correctly. So, and again, the KPI is the key performance indicator. This is actually going to be the the ratio that you need to hit, or the the actual target that you need to hit. But hopefully, if structured com- correctly, that KPI is very deeply rooted in government policy to begin with. Uh, and that's again to kind of use another term. That's that's the SBT. That's the kind of um, the the performance uh, target, right? That uh, for a country. So that's going to be their their very stated public goals under the Paris Agreement. So their NDCs, right? Or it's going to be some other um, known policy in their development plan. Uh, And hopefully the KPI is very solidly linked to the national policy and to the program of the government. And then that's carrying a lot more weight uh, in the bond instrument.
2: Okay, So um, let's talk, uh, if you don't mind, a little bit before we go to our break about uh, some of the projects that have, at least to my mind, worked really well in this space. And you've been involved in some of them. Uh, your wonderful podcast. You've talked to people about these. Before we go into discussing Belize, that seems to be the talk of the town, I'd like to start with the basics, if you don't mind, about the Seychelles uh, debt for nature deal, uh, just in terms of a, drawing a contrast between debt for nature deals and Using debt restructurings as a way to do environmentally uh, sound uh, policy, but also to give us some sense of what this entire world of debt for nature uh, swaps is. That again, um, you know, uh, seemed to have got, gone out of favor, but now lots of people are talking about them as if they're, you know, uh, the brand new thing that will save the world.
1: Yeah, so exactly. I mean, they, this is not a new idea. Uh, it's been around since the '80s. It was very popular kind of in the '80s and '90s, um, and then kind of, I I think kind of just got eclipsed by the HIPPIC program and and other global kind of flavors of the month, so to speak. Um, and um, I think in today's world with this renewed Anxiety about sovereign debt, uh, you know, in the, in the context of the pandemic and very high debt levels, um, coupled with the anxiety over climate change and recognition that many of these countries that are in dis- debt distress are actually the keys to not to be melodramatic, but to saving the planet. I mean, they are, you know, the stewards of our most critical ecosystems and so how can we maybe link the two and find solutions for these countries debt problems as well as providing the fiscal space for them to pursue the policies that we all need them to pursue i mean these are you look at the numbers of you know the trillions of dollars that are needed to for investment in the adaptation mitigation transition and the money's just not there so how do we i think this is the big you know question of our era is how do we get this money that's trapped in the global north that says it wants to have an impact and is increasingly clamoring for esg outcomes how do we get that money into these you know more risky environments that and countries that don't necessarily have regular affordable access to the international capital markets. And then at the same time, these countries are also, you know, we're developing the common framework, we're developing all of these other, you know, ideas for debt relief for these countries. Maybe we can somehow connect the dots. Um, it's not easy. It's, <laughs> there's, as is always with sovereign debt, there are a lot of geopolitical and other interests. And, and it's it's complicated, but I think it's what the era is calling for. And we have to be bold and brave and, and try to find these solutions. And debt for nature is one of them, uh, as, as well as these other instruments that we were just talking about. So
0: b- before we go to break, can I just follow up really quickly um, to... Kind of close the the loop about the link between Seychelles and the, oh, the Belize yes, I deal. <laughs> no, I, I I mean I take your your point. Actually, sets it up really nicely in a way. I have been I have been thinking about the Seychelles transaction as sort of a, a kind of a proof of concept in a way. But then my sense of it is that it was. Um, so first of all, a very small transaction, but also conducted. It, tell me if I'm wrong. Outside the context of a broader debt restructuring, and that it, in some ways it seemed like it came and went with a big shrug. Am I? Am I? Are the differences? So first of all, am, am I right about the to have that somewhat dismissive take about Seychelles, or, or am I being too cynical? And and to the extent there are differences. Between the two transactions, are they? uh, They're certainly not just size. Belize was much larger, but is it? Does it matter that the the blue bond in Belize was was part of a broader debt restructuring? Do we need to think about the link as very important?
1: I I think for us, you know, in the sovereign debt world, you know, your view of the Seychelles deal is common, and and I even had it a little bit myself of just not really sure it was that great and it was kind of small and the Paris Club didn't really give a very big discounts. And, but as I kind of got into the weeds, no pun intended, with it um, and, and really spoke to people in the Seychelles and in the world of conservation, then I had this aha moment of, actually this was really an important deal. It was a hugely important deal for Seychelles. And it was a really important deal for conservation. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's enormous footprint of of ocean that was put under conservation in that deal. And everyone that I speak to in the conservation world always is constantly reminding me of saying, you know, even if a deal is small in terms of the financial impact, it can have a huge impact on the conservation, which is actually very, very meaningful So they try to remind me that, you know, we don't necessarily always have to treat the whole debt problem or the whole debt stock of a country to have or or to achieve a meaningful outcome for conservation. And I think that's important for us kind of sovereign debt nerds to remember because we can get kind of, you know, always thinking about the the whole big picture and, and lose sight of the
2: conservation. I want to follow up on this and then we really do have to go to break because I, Liana will will scold us otherwise. But I I am a little confused about this aspect of the Seychelles deal. I've run across the same disjunction between my friends who work in conservation saying this was really important and my friends who do sovereign debt world saying, you know, uh, uh, it was just a few hundred thousand dollars going back into uh, the Seychelles for conservation. Seychelles is actually a relatively rich country. this is why are you guys um, wasting all this time on on this? And So I wanna um, maybe just drill down on one aspect of the deal that resounded with me, but I, I don't fully understand and that you talked about, in one of your uh, podcasts, which was the, the balance of payments aspect of this deal. And as I understand it in the Seychelles deal, one of the, the design features was that some of the debt that was supposed to go to the Paris, Club, I, I think it was France in particular, I- instead that money gets put into local currency and then put into conservation, and so th- there's these two aspects of it that seem to be important. Yet, from an economic perspective, unless go- you're going to inflate, what benefit does it do to have, you know, francs uh, have euros go into local currency? So that that's what. But but in your conversation, I, I think this balance of payments aspect of it loomed large, even though it was a small amount of money in them. I'm hoping you can explain to us why in, in real world practice, converting some of the debt into local currency is not just all about inflation.
1: I, I guess the, the brief way of putting it is instead of writing a check and like sending it you know abroad, you're really investing in the local community. So that is also that's saving dollars because or euros because you're not sending it, you know, in hard currency. Um, but you're also you, so you get the the local currency benefit. But you're also then investing it in the economy. So there is that multiplier effect, and so you're you're supporting local activities, local communities, the fisheries. Um, and then the conservation. You're just cleaning up some, you know the the ocean and and conserving something that your economy is, is very much dependent on. And so the and for Bel- um, for Seychelles, what they also, what came out of that discussion was also the fact that they were able to then kind of rebrand themselves and that that set them up differently in the markets. Um, and kind of helped in their story of conservation and enabled them to then issue a blue bond. And they they also just kind of repositioned themselves. So for, for Seychelles, it did end up being, you know, an important transaction, even though, like we said, from, from our perspective that, you know, maybe the debt relief part of it was, was not as significant. And part of that is also because they had already gone through their debt restructuring. Uh, and so the donors were not particularly willing to give additional debt relief on top of it.
2: Well, I think well, we should go to break now. And then when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, other deals like the Seychelles and specifically beliefs that uh, a have worked and maybe even talk about deals that are on the horizon uh, that might be even more exciting. So let's go to break.
0: So Jill, I wanna I wanna ask you about Belize, but as a as a lead into that, um, a couple of things that you said in the first half of the episode have prompted me to to. This prompted a couple of questions, and so in part, I'm thinking of the idea that even if the broader financial impact of one of these transactions is relatively small, it can have a huge uh, impact potentially on conservation. And I'm I hope this question makes sense. I'm wondering if we should think about um, green lending as in part a solution to a political problem or maybe a credibility problem or maybe both in the sense that governments are maybe doing things, maybe they're not getting that much new fiscal space to invest in climate adaptation or mitigation, or maybe we shouldn't be as worried about whether they're freeing up the fiscal space to do those things, because what's really happening is that they are being encouraged to make green investments that they wouldn't otherwise make, not for financial reasons, but for political reasons. And maybe they're being, to the extent uh, investors wind up ultimately care about this, maybe they're developing some credibility so that when they say they're going to make green investments, people believe them. Is that an important part about how we should be evaluating these transactions, or should we really be asking just whether they free up a significant new fiscal space for investing in the environment?
1: And and, and to be specific, you're thinking about the debt swaps at this point, not the kind of new money instruments, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Thank yeah.
1: you. Yeah. So um I think that's I think that's true. I think the the there are these different contexts that these debt swaps can take place in. So you have the kind of the Seychelles model, which was a bilateral you know, deal between the Paris Club and the country. And as we just discussed, it maybe didn't have a huge impact kind of on debt relief, but it achieved a very significant conservation outcome and created momentum for that government to continue to build upon a, a, a kind of green, blue kind of policies and a story in the financial markets that was very beneficial. Um, you know. And then there's these other ones, which we'll get to in kind of the police context, which are happening in a context of debt distress and there it's of everything's important both the debt relief as well as um you know the conservation outcome and in both cases you're creating this kind of political will and attention on their credibility of delivering you know outcomes and and accountability because there is ongoing involvement by the other development partners, whether those are the donors that are providing the relief um, or you know, other parties involved, such as the Nature Conservancy in these deals that we've been discussing.
2: So Jill, if you don't mind it, maybe we can talk a tiny bit about the key role that the Nature Conservancy has played in a number of these deals. I I think they were crucial in the Seychelles. We know they were crucial with Belize. Um, Our students probably don't know, at least many of them don't know much about the Nature Conservancy, uh, but they have been around for a long time, but uh, it would help us a great deal if you could give us something of the basics of why they have become such a big player in these deals and what sort of crucial role they're playing here?
1: So the Nature Conservancy is the world's largest conservation NGO. Um, they have a particular branch within the Nature Conservancy called Nature uh, NatureVest, which is their impact investment slash finance kind of part. And um, they've just been very on um, the cutting edge of innovation and thinking about how to mobilize finance for conservation. And so they, as you said, they've been uh, central to many of the debt swaps over the years, even going back to the kind of the earliest ones. I think even the first one was uh, TNC uh, supported. So they are just passionate about the conservation outcomes um and they are kind of aligned with this 30 30 30 goal you know 30 of the, the territory of the earth 30 percent of the ocean by 2030 so it's kind of they they have a goal uh and they're um looking to you know for countries and for transactions to to achieve that goal so and they have the ability and our and the willingness to use their balance sheet and and their you know strong credit rating to to try to kind of be in the mix of the financing and in of these transactions as we'll get into uh, to to make it all happen.
2: So uh, one one thing, and maybe we'll get into this uh, in our discussion of Belize, but I think it's worth thinking about a little bit separately, although please correct me if I'm wrong, since you've actually uh, worked with these institutions on real deals. My sense is that for any of us who care about conservation outcomes actually being achieved as opposed to just you know going on TED Talks and saying that they're gonna happen, the Nature Conservancy provides Credibility. Like one of the things with Belize that seemed to matter, and maybe this will get us into the Belize discussion, is they had people on the ground, people on the ground who were well respected, who were going to make sure that. No, absolutely. The, yeah. No, sorry. sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I, I want this this credibility function. Uh, strikes me as uh, really important because you know that a lot of these bonds that say that they're green and don't you know that, that don't promise to do anything and will like tell you clearly w- we promise to do nothing and we may use the money to other things and then you know and you can't do anything here this sort of solves that problem because the money is dedicated and the nature conservancy is going to make sure you're not going to get more relief unless you do the things you promised and they're maybe less susceptible to cap political capture. And I mean, I, I'm probably building a, a sort of a sandcastle, in know, in terms of all the good things they could do to improve the world, but, you know, it, I like the no, credibility no, you, function. You're,
1: you're, you're, you're spot on. And, and when I mentioned NatureVest and, and their kind of finance types who are thinking about, you know, all of these sorts of transactions, I, I should have equally highlighted all of their scientists and all of their you know, conservation you know, implementation and all the, all the boots on the ground that they have in I think 70, or 80 countries, I forget the count now. Um, so they are very much in the science of, of what's going to happen. They're in the implementation of what's going to happen. And so absolutely they're lending huge credibility to these transactions. It's not just up to the government. The government is really in partnership with the Nature Conservancy going forward. Uh, And to get to the Belize transaction, one of the reasons why that transaction could happen is precisely because of the long and very deep relationship that TNC has had with uh, the country over decades. So this wasn't just you know, someone showing up and saying, oh, we're going to, you know, do this project. Um, this is very much, you know, kind of in the the DNA of of, of the Nature Conservancy and, and their relationship with these countries.
0: So can we use this as a springboard to talk both a little bit about the transaction and also about the role of the Development Finance Corporation? Because... Mm-hmm tell me if I'm wrong in my characterization of the transaction. I I know I will be overly simplistic, but in effect, if we sort of strip out many of the details, the proceeds from the blue bond are lent to Belize, which uses them to retire the super bond. And of course, Belize promises to repay that loan. And so in a very simplistic sense, the blue bond is backed by the full faith and credit of bullies and nothing more. It's kind of like a country bond in that respect, except that we've been talking about some of these important distinctions. And and Me Too and you were talking about the Nature Conservancy's role in lending credibility to the, the promise to do green stuff with some of the fiscal space that gets freed up. And I'm wondering if we can talk, first of all, if you can correct or elaborate on my characterization of the transaction. But also if we can talk about the role of the DFC. So as I understand Mm -hmm. it, it provides political risk insurance, but really that means that if Belize doesn't pay uh, the loan back, TNC can go to arbitration. And then if they win an arbitration, which they presumably would, they can make a demand for payment. And then if Belize won't pay then and only then, years down the road, does the political risk insurance kick in? So I'm wondering what, it it seems to me like the role of the the political risk insurance might be more than just purely financial. And and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay. First, I think to just go back to the transaction, um, it's actually several transactions. uh, And I think that's what needs to kind of be fleshed out. And I'll try to try to be as clear as possible. Um, So at the heart of it, you have Belize, who just couldn't pay back the super bond, uh, which as we know was already uh, consolidated all of its external debt into one bond because of many other restructurings. So you have a country that has been struggling with its external debt for a long time, hurricanes, all sorts of other reasons. Um, And it had yet again fallen into debt distress, mainly because of the pandemic and the collapse of tourism, which it depends on. Um, So those negotiations were ongoing. So that's kind of one transaction was the kind of negotiations with bondholders and what was going to happen. And that was had kind of reached a stalemate because you had the, the bondholders really insisting on the... You know, involvement of the IMF. Um, they were looking at more of a kind of exchange into another new instrument, which uh, is, um, you know, Li Bukhaid used to call him the son of Superbond <laughs> or something. So there was gonna be some kind of Superbond 2.0 coming out. Um, and those negotiations were really fraught, uh, tense and had reached kind of a stalemate. And then there's this other idea of this debt for nature transaction. As I said, there's been an ongoing decades-long relationship between TNC and the government. Uh, They had talked about debt for nature in the past, um, and actually they have relationships with previous government, and so when the new government came in, um, there was a lot of consensus across the political spectrum that this was a good idea so then kind of how does it work and this is where the other transactions kind of come in there is both the blue bond what is called the blue bond which is tnc creates a vehicle and borrows money and this is an important point from new investors right this is a new investment pool these this is going to be a double a rated uh instrument it's it's not targeted to kind of the emerging market distressed characters that were holding the super bond. So they issue a blue bond to other investors and then they on lend that to Belize in what's called the blue loan. And the blue loan is what then benefited from the DFC uh, insurance policy. Um, And that's kind of where the magic happens, so to speak, um, is that DFC by coming in and, you know, kind of giving that insurance policy to the blue loan basically transforms that risk from belief risk, which was terrible and defaulted and no one has a lot of confidence in that into what they're calling kind of US risk with a little sprinkle of beliefs. Um, it completely transforms that kind of element, which then enables the blue bond and the vehicle that's issued that is the only asset is really the blue loan that they can then issue to these new investors who are more interested in kind of longer term, just kind of double A sort of paper. And because TNC can, can achieve that, they can then pass on that savings to Belize. And that's where the space for kind of conservation kind of arises.
2: So Jill, I, um, feel free to tell us if this is, uh, I'm going too uh, far from what, you want to talk about, but from a restructuring point of view, one of the key questions that one is always asked is: whenever you add bells and whistles onto a restructuring deal, is you know how many basis points did you get? And I, I have been very uh, optimistic about the implications of the Belize deal uh, for the future. I, I think is. A, it, it's structured in this really cool way. Uh, investors seem to have actually been happy about doing the deal and seem to have given some benefit, like a lot more in terms of price value uh, than normally you see in terms of studies of the greenium. But uh, Mark and I have friends who are take the opposite view. They say, look, the Belize bonds were trading at you know, cents on the dollar. And now this new deal with the Nature Conservancy, with the bond buyback, just inflated uh, how much investors got. And investors actually got a steal and Belize got really very, very little. And Uh, You just, you green people are just, you know, um, jumping up and down for no reason. You were inside the deal. Are we being too optimistic or am I being too optimistic in thinking that investors actually gave a few cents on the dollar in exchange for conservation here?
1: I think... um... I mean, as much as I'd love to say that the bondholders cared about marine conservation, <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that's like really what happened here. And I think it is really hard to put a number on that kind of greenium aspect of the deal. Um, but what I do know and is that the negotiations were really close around a number and that they were kind of going back and forth and that bid ask, you know, was still points apart. Um, And the fact that uh, Belize could come forward and say that they were going to make a upfront endowment payment into the conservation trust, you know, kind of was, was the bit that kind of got it over to be concluded. Uh, and to make the deal happen. But I think what we should really focus on, actually, rather than kind of wondering whether that was the five points or, you know, what was that greenium, what I think about is that the whole deal happened because of the TN because TNC's presence, you know, if it wasn't for TNC coming in, Belize would still be sitting there with its bondholders arguing and in default and struggling. Um, I mean, we know how long those negotiations can go on. Um, The bondholders were absolutely insistent on, you know, things that were non-starters for Belize. And so they were really struggling. So the whole the whole fact that a, that a resolution was achieved very timely and Belize could kind of move on uh, as well as it has, all of that happened because of the debt swap. Because Belize didn't have the, the, the means to have a buyback, right? They had to have TNC's backing to get that done so absent that they would still be sitting around arguing about the son of superbond and to get back to kind of mark's point about the dfc the dfc's coming in and i agree with you that the you know this arbitral award you know insurance the political risk insurance that they provided is a bit cumbersome it might even be a bit expensive There might be other ways, you know, in future deals that we can think of something else, Um, but it really, you know, kind of enabled it to happen. And I think there was an added benefit going back to kind of the credibility, the governance, the whole story that you had US involvement and kind of a stamp of approval on the deal that just helped get it done.
0: You mentioned um, a sort of future looking towards the future and I, and I'm hoping we can ask you to do that a bit as we wrap up um in the sense that there are it would seem to me lots of potential candidates for similar deals i mean me too and i are thinking uh, some about sri lanka this semester which has both marine conservation and deforestation uh, challenges to to address um so uh, what do you see in the next couple of years in terms of opportunities to use this or similar kinds of transactions? Either in the—I don't want to put anybody in in a restructuring context who you know like wants to pretend that they don't have to be there. But so whether in a restructuring context or not, um, uh, what what would you be looking for in the next couple of years?
1: I think there's there's great opportunity. For these types of transactions. My personal dream is that we could even push the official sector to kind of think of these types of deals within, you know, the common framework. I mean, that's a whole probably worthy of a whole nother episode we could talk about of why the common framework, you know, is struggling. Um, you know, I think it would be really interesting to. Introduce these sorts of elements uh, into into those situations, um, you know, as well as with you know certain large bilateral non traditional creditors <laughs> um, that that may also it might be a way of unlocking things because this is a, a there is a feel good factor about this um, and and that politically. It's important, and I think a lot of governments, both from the debtor side as well as the creditor side, can get around. Um, so I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of this, hopefully.
0: Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us. And, and as we see more and more of these deals, um, I hope we can we can continue the the conversation because uh, I have I have to say I. I probably have been more skeptical, I think, than Me Too. Me Too uh, probably is an understatement, more skeptical about, not about the, the sort of climate benefits, but about the scalability and some of the other, um, some of the grander claims about the Belize deal. But I, I my skepticism has been tempered somewhat and I, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I look forward to hearing more about this as we go forward.
1: Great. Right. Well, I, I look forward to keep talking with you and convincing you. <laughs> I'm trying to turn everyone into an eco warrior now.
0: <laughs> that would be it. We, we need more of more rather than fewer of them. But thank Absolutely. you so much for, for joining us.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.